there is a part of a vast domain that is experience-based medicine. This can be helpful in dealing with clinical problems for which controlled data does not exist. What are we talking about? We're talking about clinical pearls. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Welcome back to Therapist in Motion podcast series. This is Dan again from a remote location, Beaverton, Oregon. We are once again joined by Greg Johnson, co-founder of the Institute of Physical Art and repeat podcast joiner, as well as his partner at J&J Physical Therapy and director of the residency program and fellowship, uh, director of the fellowship program, excuse me, for the Institute of Physical Art, Brent Yamascha. And we have a couple uh, listeners on the side who maybe potentially will be willing to join in, as well as Carrie Schofield and Tori Foster. As my introduction stated, we're going to be talking a little bit about clinical pearls today. Every morning in the IPA classes, Greg and Brent do a great job of allowing the participants to ask questions about the material and then asking participants to reflect on the physical changes that they have experienced from the treatment that they've received from these courses. So over the last two days, I've been taking very diligent notes from our participants and have compiled these, and we're going to spend a little time asking our experts here for some clinical pearls. So welcome, lady, ladies, and gentlemen. Uh, we're honored, blessed, and privileged to, again, having you join us here on this podcast. Um, I think we have a lot of fun doing these. I look forward to collaborating moving forward with all of you. So question number one. How and what is your understanding of motor control and its role within the realm of manual physical therapy? Dan, first of all, just thank you so much for providing us this opportunity to share our opinions and our thoughts and to give us a chance to reach out to those physical therapists that may be seeking answers on certain things. Motor control right now is the absolute in word in physical therapy. Thank God it has finally gotten into manual therapy. Uh, it has been the missing component as far as I'm concerned from the very beginning of my professional life. I've been a physical therapist now for 48 years and I was very uh, fortunate to spend seven years at Kaiser Vallejo studying under Maggie Knott. Now I gotta tell you, PNF, as far as I'm concerned, is the ultimate form of manual therapy. Truly, it is far more important, as, in my opinion, than being able to manipulate a joint. Because with PNF, you're totally capable of utilizing it to mobilize joints, to increase range of motion of myofascial tissues, and being able to enter in to identify motor control and neuromuscular function dysfunctions, that doesn't sound quite right, and being able to utilize the tools to enhance the dysfunctions you find. So I've got to say from the very beginning, motor control for me has been the foundation of everything that I've done. So 
When we say, what is the role of manual therapy and motor control, to me it is manual therapy and motor control training should be integrated together. They're not separate entities. Uh, for me, every time that I've ever enhanced the mobility of something through manual therapy, whether it's a joint, a myofascial structure, a neurovascular structure, a visceral structure, uh, or a dural structure, each one of those, after you've enhanced that mobility, should be followed up with proper evaluation of the present motor control and treatment of any of those components. Whether it be, is it the proper sequencing of firing? Do you have the proper timing? Are the core muscles firing first? Do you have good coordination between the local and the global muscles? Are you able to coordinate your head movements with your feet movements? These are all areas that I have always been involved with. Therefore, uh, the question I think is an appropriate question for the world of manual therapy because right now the world of manual therapy has had to come to grips with the new research of how important motor control is in the care of our patients. I think, uh, and again, Dan, thanks for having us on this podcast. Um, there have been some great research studies that have come out over the last decade, and I think that there are people uh, that I would look to beyond just my own opinion of it, including Paul Hodges and Julie Hydes, uh, even even Greg Cook and their group of, of looking at sort of the research component of it. But as a practicing clinician, I like to think of the integration of manual therapy and motor control as providing someone with the options for movement that they didn't have because of a stiffness or a trauma or a lack of... Uh, or even a fear component of wanting to move in such a way. We, as manual therapists, provide opportunities and on-ramps to give them those options for movement back. And it must translate into something that's purposeful and meaningful for the patient. You know, anybody can take a club and swing it, but is it purposeful? Does it have the accuracy? And I think that speaks to repetition, practice, uh, patients being allowed to learn from their own error is something I remember back from PT school. I find that true still, that their own error detection is oftentimes a better, longer-lasting motor experience than uh, a physical therapist saying, you have to do this perfectly um, right in front of a mirror, etc. Um, we as manual therapists have a wonderful opportunity to help someone back into rediscovering the power of movement and how that can be integrated, as Greg alluded to, uh, within, a, within a paradigm such as FMT. There's a mechanical neuromuscular motor control triad that works seamlessly together. Yeah, and, and, and to complement both of your answers, I think that as part of my professional journey and coming from a school of thought that was extremely Maitland-based and then even... I don't know that I really want to admit this on a podcast, but <clears throat> John Barnes, <clears throat> sorry, I had something in my throat when I said that out loud. Um, there was just a component that it was all passive. And what I've learned from the Institute, even though I had two professors who were trained directly by Maggie in, in PNF, was that when you 
correct a dysfunctional structure and then you do a motor control component, your goal is to enhance their function. And so that's been kind of my clinical pearl from the utilization of manual therapy plus motor control is I may make an, a, a movement or a structure normalized or more efficient, but unless I do the motor control component, it's most likely not going to translate to anything functional that that person is going to do. So I have to say thank you to that because I think that that's helped me help a lot of patients. Yeah, I was trying to find the right way to phrase this question, but looking at therapists, we, for example, even today as part of the course, did a lot of our motor control on the table. But I asked a question about how that translates into upright function. Would you please ask how we can be better therapists when we look at motor control both on the table and translate that to upright functional exercise and movement, please. Um, I think the power of, and again, the course that we're teaching today is functional mobilization too, is, is just one part of, I think, the functional manual therapy course offerings where there are other courses that do go into much greater detail. The power of getting uh, an option for movement on a table is then to allow a patient to get up and as many of the participants have felt changes in their body, a new sensory awareness, a new way that their foot comes into contact with the ground is the beginning of a motor control experience. And I think that without having that knowledge of where they were before, i.e. the pretest, to after a treatment, a post-test, that lays a framework for motor control training. That there's something inherently powerful about a very localized, directed, specific manual therapy intervention, including the neuromuscular components that complete every mobilization that we go through. Um, it does begin to translate. It's the groundwork that prepares them for that first motor control awareness session. Tori and Dan, I'd say that both of you have had uh, very good questions there. But I think any time that there is a question that has to do with philosophy, we have to be able to really look at the context in which that philosophical question comes from. Uh, Tori, in talking about moving to weight-bearing, has a very good context within it. But let's say that my context as a physical therapist is eliminating pain. Therefore, when a patient is out of pain, I have achieved my goal. If my context is helping them rehab from a surgery, when they have gotten to a certain functional capacity, I allow them now to be discharged because they fit within a paradigm. The process I had to go through to get to where I am as an educator is a recognition that I had to go through a paradigm shift. What is it that is the ultimate goal that we can have as a physical therapist? Even though we never reach it with our patients, what is that ultimate goal? And for me, it's to be able to understand what that individual structure is capable of, what its optimal function could be. Therefore, 
when I shift from treating someone's pain and look towards what is the optimal capacity, what is the quality of life that, that they could have, when I start shifting to look them as individuals, as that person, what is it that they want in their life? The person who wants to return to a marathon is a lot more than the person who wants to walk the uh, path every day. I then now have created a context and a paradigm that I have to be able to say, what is their system capable of? And I need to study that ability. What am I capable as a physical therapist to produce in them to get there? And I have to be able to look at every one of their systems be able to see what I am capable of evaluating to see their dysfunction and what I'm capable to be able to facilitate for them to be able to get to the optimal function. So the question always has to be is, what is my goal? And I think for most of us as physical therapists, we need a paradigm shift to optimal function. All right, so let's go into, I'm really struggling on what question to go to next because you guys led me into potentially three questions. But because of what you just said, Greg, I'm going to go speak to efficiency and functional movement as opposed to getting somebody back to normal or treating their pain. And, and what I really want you to, to speak there as well and connect there as well is connected to some studies that you've mentioned about utilizing functional MRI, as well as talking about the, the body and the person's response to the word pain versus using something else besides the word pain. Well, of course, I'm going to be the one that has to answer that question. I mean, I did Dan, say Greg. I, I do know that. <laughs> Look, Dan, we all know that the human experience is complex. And when within that experience, we have to start recognizing that no matter how many studies we have about an individual problem, the individual that's in front of you is an N of one. And so no matter what study that I have looked at, and I have to say I'm a great advocate of us studying all the evidence and applying that evidence to the individual when it's appropriate. I am very cautious about an evidence-based process because it can lock us into saying the only way that I can treat individuals is because there is evidence behind that treatment. Most of the evidence is on research projects that the end of maybe, let's say, 2,000 individuals, we had 1,200 who responded positively without any consideration for the 800 that didn't. Therefore, no matter what research we follow, when we're with an individual, they're an N of 1. If they fit within that study, then it's appropriate. But many individuals do not fit fit within that and we are responsible for the clinical reasoning, the problem solving and the discovery process as to what that person's need and meet them at their need with the skills that we have. Yeah, to tag along with that, 
Greg Johnson sends out about 10 to 12 abstracts a day. If, if he, he has your email, right? So this guy is always in the literature. And I, I think just to speak to maybe the podcast audience is, um, you know, motor control in a, an efficient state, it looks good and it feels good to the patient. There is a, there's something about motor control that has safety within it. It's got a, a freedom to now go back to dancing or, you know, whatever the activity might be without the fear or the threat of having uh, to pay for it with, with symptoms <coughs> such as pain. We had a dialogue today on, you know, how, how do you deal with people that all of a sudden have, you know, better range of motion, better movement, they're, they're walking better, they look better, and yet they still have pain. Well, in our practice act, we are designated as, as basically movement experts. We, we do not have a pain clause within our practice act statement on our role as physical therapists. We are movement specialists that are provide transformation and wellness and, and, and the other components. So with it's really, I'm trying to unpack your question, Dan, because <laughs> within the realm of pain, we now have a lot of research that uh, teaches us all about what is pain. It's, it's, um, it's the, the concept that there must be threat involved. You know, people can endure all kinds of pain if there's a purpose to it. And that's why um, my wife has more than one child. You know, we have three daughters because... <laughs> You know, pain that has a, an outcome is, is worth enduring. And I think we need to look at movement and function in the same capacity. That sometimes we have to endure with, until the pain goes away, we need to stay on the journey of enhancing optimal movement and movement that feels safe for patients. Yeah, I think that what what you guys have both alluded to is is, is huge, right? Like, one thing that part of what I've learned from you guys and what I've learned from Gary Gray is that in a certain situation, I don't really give two rips about the patient's pain. Like once I get them back to an efficient movement or I'm going to set up another question on access, on access or seeing a significant improvement in mobility that it's going to take time for their system to adjust to that new range of motion and that that pain threshold may take time to catch up to what their new efficient movement state may be. So one thing that I've really done in my practice and, and I kind of want to go off of, of, of Tori and, and some things that he's done over his practice as well is to say you know what 99.5% of the time after my initial evaluation, where, by the way, I'm obligated by my practice act to get pain, I never ask them about pain again. And, and part of that I've learned from our owner, Tim Spooner. Part of that I've learned from Tori. Part of that I've learned from you guys. Part of that I've learned from Gary. Uh, I, I think that there's a huge component of putting all those things together, but I think it's important for our listeners to, to realize that you know what? I am a movement expert. But my journey of being a better movement expert never ends. 
So therefore, I should always have the desire, the drive, the attributes we spoke to in our, in our last podcast to get better. Because when I have a better understanding of that, I really don't care what their pain response is unless it's something that's going to be contraindicated and, and cause inhibition of their system. Help them really improve that efficiency of movement. with all that however sometimes I do feel that asking about their pain gives us more information as to what they are feeling what they are thinking that day which gives us more information as to where we need to direct our treatments because it tells us a little bit more from a personal standpoint where they're coming from and what they've been experiencing and how we need to best treat them that day you know Carrie You're absolutely right. Some individuals who are in pain are so fearful of that pain. They have so much invested in that pain. And the only thing that they would desire is somebody to acknowledge that they have it. And I've got to tell you, sometimes my acknowledgments of some people's pain frees them from the desire of having to have it and having to be able to have others feel it. So there is that component that we must recognize in our patients. What Dan and Tori are talking about are those individuals that don't have that need that we need to be able to address for them uh, the functional enhancement that they desire. So, so and, Greg, I have a quick question. Would you say that what you just talked about there are, I don't, I don't want to put them in a box but would you say some of those patients are kind of defined by their pain or that's what they're like of course they are and 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 many people are probably the most powerful physical experience that we can have is pain you know love sex many other things like that have power but all of those disappear when we're in state of severe pain And that pain magnifies in the brain. And how we've been brought up has so much to do with it. If we have been brought up in an environment where pain is acknowledged, where pain is reinforced, where pain is is empathized to a high degree, then we will want that from our caregivers. And my access to the patient is to be able to acknowledge their experience. So I have to say, yes, acknowledging pain is important. The biopsychosocial approach now within physical therapy that Mosley and Butler has been able to bring forwards and O'Sullivan has done a great amount of work in is so important for our profession. But I got to tell you, there isn't anything they taught me that is that new because I discovered it with my patients. But now I have science behind it. Now I have organization behind it. Now I have a way of teaching others about it. It is so important what we've done because we need to understand central sensitization. Now, I didn't have that term 20 years ago, but I got to tell you, I had a lot of patients with central sensitization, and I had to figure out strategies of helping them out of them. But now I've even got more because of this scientific process it's going through. But everything that we're learning through the biopsychosocial aspect is that when a patient emphasizes their pain, when a patient is a victim of their pain, when a patient is having pain with fear related to it or any other emotion, 
they are going to have a hard process of ever recovering from that. And it's our job to help them emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually to be able to overcome it. So I think that both components are very important in our approach to patients. We have to understand when they need their pain managed. But there's other times that talking to them about their pain only sticks them in that process and doesn't help them to be able to be free from it, to be able to get to have a new life. Great comments. I can make compliment that as well. Sometimes our patients, when we, it's part of what we do in our evaluative process, uh, patient stated goals. What are, what are your goals? And they say, get rid of my pain. So at that point, okay, is it something that may be realistic? Um, and from the two of you experts, you know, that might be more realistic than for some. But at the same time, how did then I define that for them to come up with the goals that we are working towards together as part of that patient-therapist relationship and journey? So it might be a follow-up question, okay, I heard that one of your aggravating factors is looking over your shoulder while you drive. So if I can help you look over your shoulder more comfortable while you drive, would that be a goal that you feel it would be worthwhile for us to work towards? And then we have something tangible that I can measure and we work towards. And I can tell them, okay, if you look over your shoulder right now and you're at 20 degrees and that's painful, and now I can see you can look over 60 degrees and that might be stiff, but now you can look over your shoulder more comfortably, wouldn't that be much better for you? And they're like, oh, I would love that. Okay, now I'm part of that goal process but they they've told me i'm just helping them make it more realistic and then i have patients also that may say you know i'm seeing my physician next week and you think i need more physical therapy because i still have pain and i might rephrase that and say well ultimately i'm here to serve you and to help you if you what my goal is for you is to have the comfort the confidence and the capability to self-manage so i kind of look at those three c's comfort capability and confidence and when I look at that, then they're like, oh, I would I'd like that as well. And then I ask a follow-up question, what are the most important things that you want to accomplish during our time we still have together? And it's usually something that maybe is more of an objective, measurable, functional thing, like I want to be able to pick up my grandkids, I want to look over my shoulder, I want to look up, walk up my stairs. At that point in the journey, it's not always about the pain. Sometimes it is, but I try to relate it back to a function that we're working on to complement the pain question. You know, Tori, uh, first of all, I by the wisdom that you've just shared, I should be asking you questions instead of you asking me questions. Because it really shows... Are you shows... sure you want to do that? <laughs> yeah, careful. Are you sure you want to go down that box, down that road, down that... That might be deeper but, than a rabbit hole. <laughs> but, Tori, I agree with everything you've said. For me, have you ever treated paraplegic patients? Yes. Now... Have you ever met a paraplegic patient that didn't want to walk? No. So, what is the usual goal for every paraplegic patient? To optimize what they can do within their daily tasks. And to walk again. <laughs> I was going to say, I've never met one of the hundreds I've treated that doesn't want to walk. Now, if I, as a physical therapist, approach them from the point of view that they will never walk, what have I done for who they are? You have diminished their ability to see what their future can be. You've taken and away it, their hope. You take away their hope. So 
When I approach a paraplegic patient, I may know they never may never walk. But you know what my goal is? They're going to walk. Man, we're going to work together and you're going to walk. But everyone that hasn't walked has gotten to a point they say, you know what, I'm not going to walk. But now they have known that somebody has partnered with them to reach their goal. That's what you're talking about. That person wants to turn their head to drive down the driveway and be able to see down the driveway as a major goal. I want to return to tennis. I want to do something. Those are functional goals that are essential that we know what our patient wants. And sometimes I go into my fennels and, I, and they'll say, yeah, their pain's down 50%. They're feeling so much better. Well, great. But what is it that's still not doing? The patient will look and say, well, nobody's really talked to me about that. And I go crazy because I want to know from that first visit, what is the first thing you want to get back to? What is our goal? What is it that we're going to work with for you? What are we going to do? And those are things that are essential in what we do. I am not so interested in their pain. I'm interested in their passion. What do we do? We get a patient in who's 10 years been in chronic pain. They have no idea what they want to return back to. What do we? What's our goal? Not to get them out of their chronic pain, to get them back to something that's meaningful in their life, to help them discover, to help them dream again, to help them have passion again, to help them have a purpose in their life. That is more important than eliminating their pain. And that is what I'm about, is I want to know what you want to do again. And sometimes for my fellows, it's eye-opening to hear their patients say, this is what I want to do. And we start setting the process of accomplishing that. And now the patients, we're in partnership. Before then, all we're trying to do is manage pain instead of returning to a life that they dream of. Guys, I, I, that listeners, that, that conversation, that discussion off that question is pure gold. Because that's almost 100 years of clinical experience discussing something that our profession has struggled with since we began. And unfortunately, in my opinion, and I think a lot of other therapists' opinions, that's the biggest struggle that we have right now in our profession. I think I'd like to speak to, until you have experienced interactions with patients who have come in with decades or more of pain and maybe have been the first person to help them see a breakthrough in their pain, then, then we're left a little bit wanting for how do we respond to those questions. And, I, and so I believe that validating the patient's value their primary concern, their chief complaint, if their chief complaint is pain in the context of not being able to live the quality of life, the purposeful life that they want to live, then to me as a physical therapist on that first visit, my most important objective is to delve into and understand their pain. This may, we may be one of the first people within the medical profession to honestly validate their experience. And that's an often a, that's often a response that you'll get is that you're the first person that I, I, I thought I was crazy. My, my so-and-so believes I'm crazy. But to have them, to have you believe them is the first step in providing a gateway to change the second component of reframing their pain. If you, 
have an opportunity to help somebody reframe their pain. That's an incredibly empowering experience. And I think sometimes, I believe through formal education, we, we have lacked the tools to, to get to those places where we can help change that pain experience. And so through advanced con ed and paradigms like the ones we're exploring, the ones that drew me over 21 years to this paradigm, is that I have the confidence that I can help somebody. And I'm going to do that until proven otherwise. You know, in an earlier podcast, Dan, we talked about uh, various attributes of physical therapist. Empathy, compassion, clinical reasoning, multiple other ones. And I really want to share something that my 48 years of experience that has really come through. And for those of you who are physical therapists and young physical therapists, now, those of you who have had a period of time in pain or chronic pain, it changes your life. And that experience, particularly if you have victory over it, helps you with those patients in the future because you understand their pathos. You understand their journey. Some of the physical therapists who have never had chronic pain are some of the most difficult ones for me to mentor because they truly believe that because they've had pain and it's disappeared, that there's something special about themselves. And therefore, when they have a patient walk in that's been in pain for five years, they truly do not understand it and have the compassion and the empathy that that patient requires. Those of you out there listening to us right now, if you've never experienced chronic pain, then you need to be able to study it better to have the compassion to know that that person in front of you has tried their hardest. They are not someone that could get over it like you have in the past. And I have had many individuals who really believed that they would never have chronic pain all of a sudden develop chronic pain and they become better physical therapists because of it. All right, we're going to go two more questions. <laughs> we're going to get two more, huh? Yeah, I think we'll get two more. Okay. <laughs> I'll try not to bloviate. Well, one of them I kind of already led into, so I think I, I feel obligated to ask it. Otherwise, my pod, podcast listeners and, and co-host Paul will probably yell at me for not following up on this. Yeah, I think, no, Paul won't yell at me. I don't think Paul ever yells. All right. So <laughs> let's go to why does it matter if a joint is off access? I, I know. Yeah, term, yeah if, you got a little. You, listener, you, you're loaded here. So, yeah. so it, um, the term off axis is a component that applies to any joint in the body that has a neutral or centric position. So we can look at the glenohumeral joint. We can look at the hip. We can look at the talus. That's what we spent our afternoon doing today. And the concept is before we do things to improve the range of motion related to a joint by improving a spin, a glide, um, a translation. One of our first principles in the IPA that I think stood out for me was that the joint had to be able to assume a centric position, either within that talocrural joint or within the glenoid fossa. One of the first principles was to be able to find 
a neutral centered position at which then and only then could you progress into a range of motion that had more of the optimal range of motion. There's plenty of people that can reach one hand over their head and get there any number of ways. But one of the key distinctions with the Institute of Physical Art, functional <laughs> manotherapy, was to provide an optimal efficiency to, to doing that. And one of the ways we have determined that is a, is a base that starts from a centered position. You know, I'd, I'd just add one thing to it. I'd like to ask the therapist who asked that question. Uh, when your wheels Paul. are out of alignment, <laughs> when your wheels are out of alignment on your front of your car, do you think you should leave them out of alignment? So that's actually really funny because Paul absolutely hates when I use the off-axis description to talk about tires on a tread. He's like... Dan, why do you always use that? And and he actually was like, I can't stand that you use that analogy all the time when you talk to therapists about on ask on access to the hip joint and 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 uh, then literally I'd ask relating him, it to tires and, and it the, does. The, it, but it, ask it's a perfect also, analogy. I'm, I'm so glad like, you're validating for this. Yeah, this I am. Ask him if he'd like to ride a bike this, with the seat slightly <laughs> rotated to the left. <laughs> I mean, it's there's there's no intelligence in human function to have something not function the way that it's designed to function. I 100% agree, and that I I am so glad that you're validating it. <laughs> I'm gonna force him to listen to this episode at this juncture just so he hears that you validated me. And if he still disagrees with me, I want a phone call. Deal. Good. <laughs> But no, I, I think that that's one of the things for me in my treatment that when I took FM2 for the first time and I heard this principle of on access, it, I connected it back to, duh, Dan, no wonder that person couldn't recruit the appropriate muscles. No wonder they couldn't have efficiency of movement because their joint was dysfunctional. And so when I was like, oh my gosh, and then I experienced it myself because I have my fair share of dysfunctions. My colleagues, including Carrie, who just walked out because she needs to go to bed, would agree that I am highly dysfunctional in a lot of different ways. <laughs> when, I, when I got my hip on access for the first time and I was able to wake up the next morning without any hip symptoms, that was fairly transformational in my personal life and my ability to then relate that to ability to help patients. So that leads me into the last question that we're going to have before we wrap this podcast up. So many of us as physical therapists have shoved our own body awareness and symptoms down a path that we don't want to experience and we don't want to bring to the forefront. So many of our patients have done the same thing. So how do you go about I don't care if you address it from a therap from a from a treating therapist standpoint who's taking your courses or that patient who has no clue about body awareness. How do you train them to enhance their body awareness? Yeah, I know that's kind of a loaded question for eleven o'clock on a thirteen hour I day. Ignorance is bliss, right? <laughs> I think I think that this 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 connecting on to the off axis dysfunction. I'm glad I let him be. <laughs> I'm giving you some time to think about this, right? <laughs> and, and, and so many people can get away with being off-axis 
and having their tires wear differently, and they'll buy new rotate, tires. They'll buy new tires. Many people will continue to function in states of dysfunction, and as long as they're continuing to live the kind of life that is satisfactory to them, they they don't heed the concept of awareness or getting something on access. Often, what drives our patients in the clinic is symptoms or the loss of performance. And so we really have a challenge at, at, in, in the world of, of manual therapy. In manual therapy, we can begin to make people aware of things that they maybe rather wish they weren't aware of. It's easy to bring someone that's got symptoms in, take them out of their symptoms, show them a life of more efficient movements so they get back. They're much more grateful person that is able to do all these things and yet is potentially preparing a pathway. I, I, I hate being deterministic or fatalistic about this, but some people will get away with their off-axis, their lack of awareness, until they don't. <laughs> and it, and it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a line that I think we have to... It's, a, it's 11 o'clock. Uh, <laughs> I love that. It's a decision, it's a clinical reasoning, I believe, that each therapist has to engage with, with the rapport that they have with the patient to help uncover and make aware, being willing to open up that box if you have the confidence and the competence to, to know that you can, you can get a faster mile, you can hike more effectively, you don't have to pay for it after that day on the snowboard, Right? Anything left to itself for long without any sort of maintenance is going to pay a price. And so I think uh, our role as, as manual physical therapists is to look at the, the paradigm of, of, a, of an overall lifetime of wellness, a quality of life. And we often allude to the dental practice for paving the way on this concept of every six months you get an extra tooth clean <laughs> and checking in. And I believe our role as physical therapists is much greater than putting out patients' fires and fixing them when they're broken. How about helping them to come along with a more optimal state of function, quality of life? Well, I was going to make a comment, but Brent well said. Um, <laughs> he did. What I was going to say is that when we are manual therapists and we provide a an intervention that lead to some degree of success when we say goodbye I'm glad you're moving better and feeling better have we really provided the service if we haven't made them a part of that journey where they need to be empowered to follow that up and so when we look at that um, educating them on the whys and the hows of what we did and how we help them achieve closer to the goal that they want to accomplish and then giving them the guidance whether maybe they don't have the mobility or the motor control and provide them the coaching to complement what we did in office to what they're doing at home and how that's going to help them is very important to that process. So I like what you said there about that journey, making them a part of that. Because if we're not empowering them to take that next step with us and for them, then they're going to continue coming back for the same thing, which at some point, we want to say we we want to help them get to the point where they don't need us for that, but yes. we're there for them for the fine yes. tuning yes. and for the as needed treatments right. down the road. 
You know, Tori, that's really good, but I'd like to really address the overall issue here. And I'd like to use a habit called smoking as an example. Now, look, some of the latest research shows that some of the smokers who begin early on in life will lose 15 years of life. But you know what? There are some centurions that have smoked their whole life. But it's all about odds. So if you ask me when a 20-year-old smoking, do I want to take the risk with them to say, you might make it to be a centurion smoking? Or do I want to say what the statistics are is you may lose 15 years of your life if you continue to smoke. I mean, it's all about odds. Some people can live using a short hoe, digging in their garden, and not having back pain. But we know the majority do end up with back pain. We know people who don't lift correctly or sit correctly will have a greater odds of back pain. So we can't say that those individuals who survive it are the majority. They're outliers. So when I approach a patient, man, you better stop smoking. You better start exercising. You better start using your body more efficiently because your odds are greater that you're going to get to be healthy in your 70s and 80s because you know what? Back in the Renaissance era, the average man lived to 50. But man, you know what? Those born today may live to their 90s and to their 100s, so you better value your body. And you better learn how to take care of it. And you better learn the things that will take you down to the point that you will lose it because this life is valuable. And our bodies and our experience of this life are a part of that journey. And all I can say is I am on the side of helping people make good choices and encouraging them to do that. Yeah, I think I'm going to make one last component tying into that question that I asked about training a patient to be more aware. And I think first and foremost, it you know, in physical therapy, we talked about, or school, we talked about not asking leading questions, right? But in certain situations, and what I've experienced from you guys is sometimes you have to ask that leading question because if you don't ask that leading question, they have no idea that what you just did for them through a manual intervention did indeed unlock what you wanted them to find. Like, and I've seen it walking around and, and lab assisting this weekend and helping people and seeing people that I've never seen before right? 90, probably 98% of the people I've never seen before. Watching them and their lab partner be like, holy crap, that's completely different than what I just experienced. But some of it is because you, Brett and Greg, had set the stage for them to be okay and be open to sense something different, right? And and I don't know if it was Brent or if it was Greg or if it was Kent that said in, in, in an IPA class, what's different when you stand up or when you sit? Tell me what's different. If you can't tell me what's different, you have a massive body awareness problem. 
So it's not, does that feel better? Do you feel your rear foot? Do you feel that fat pad being softer? Do you feel translating over that first array? Do you feel lighter? It's what feels different. And when they start to realize and reflect on what feels different, I think that's one of the biggest keys for people to start unlocking their ability to be aware of their body. Now, I will say one thing. That can be a really flipping slippery slope (laughs) because then you're going to get that person that's potentially becomes neurotic about everything that they that they feel like oh my gosh i feel pain in my right lower abdomen that must mean that i'm having an appendectomy or i'm having appendicitis i need to go to the hospital and get this checked out right like i i hope that what we do doesn't lend itself to that form of a slippery slope but rather the uh, the slippery slope of helping them realize what is efficient and more functional movement. Kind of the question that we, 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 we spent the majority of this podcast discussing. So, Dan, the only thing I'd say to that is, yes, we have personalities of our patients who will overemphasize that. And we as physical therapists need to know who they are and to have strategies to help them manage that issue so we have to be the flexible partner to know who they are that person who's going to end up having overemphasis then we've got to have strategies for helping them become the best they can be and maybe not become aware right it just may not be there right. right may not be the goal that we can have for them right uh it's recognizing but yeah. that was a great dialogue there i think it goes back to what you said tori about Ultimately, there is an empowerment that comes from being a practitioner of physical therapy, that part of our ethics is to promote the healthiest patient experience that we can. And sometimes it takes a tough message, like the quit smoking, like the stop bending over that way, because you're bringing on components of your symptoms that you've been educated on. And I don't think that is fair for either your insurance to continue to pay for or the time that we're taking out of our full practice schedules to continue that if you choose that route. But I do think it comes back to empowering a patient, using some of the concepts and principles about speaking the language that they're communicating with you and finding through that some way of translating their meaningful goals and their desirable outcomes in a, in a realm that we can assist them in that. You know, Brent, you bring up a powerful learning experience I had. Uh, I had a patient when I was still treating in Marin County. And he was a local physician. And very active. And he'd come in with back pain. And I could manipulate him. His back pain would go away, and I'd say, I'm not going to say his name right now, we need to deal with all the other issues that you've got here. I'll schedule another appointment. And you know when I'd see him again? The next time he was in pain. I'd manipulate, take away his pain, he'd leave, I'm going to schedule another patient appointment so I can get my exercises and everything. There was one time after about 10 times of me manipulating him, getting him out of pain, that he came in with such strong, ridiculous symptoms with a lateral shear 
with loss of bowel and bladder function. And I couldn't help him. And he looked at me and he said, I never believed that there'd be a point where you couldn't help me. And I had to send him for his surgery and recognized I had failed as a role of a physical therapist because my goal was not to get him out of pain. My goal was to get him to be healthy and more efficient, and I failed. To go on that topic of somebody who has had pain and had to go to surgery, now they come out of surgery, and now you see them six months, a year down the road. Somebody, possibly the surgeon, has said, no lifting, no twisting. And that patient comes in and is scared of movement. And you have to begin a dialogue to empower them in a safe way to help them move again. And that can be very challenging and powerful if you can guide them along the way to help them move better and feel better and have the confidence to regain that function. And I think when we look at these clinical pearls, it's part of that journey of connecting those dots, of being able to take a manual therapist and guide that person through those movement patterns to show them pre-test and post-test their successes to build that confidence to the point where they understand what is possible along that journey with you. And it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of mobility and motor control and connection and that confidence to get to that next level of function. And I appreciate you two giving us the pearls both in our course today and this evening to take that next step as practitioners to help people get to that next opportunity of functional capability. Was a great resolution and completion for this podcast. Well said, Tony. Right. Thank you. Thank you both of you. And Dan, thank you as well. So it's probably the latest we've ever finished a podcast. So I think with that being said, if you guys have any questions, comments, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at Therapist in Motion at SpoonerPT.com. A very special thanks to Tori, Carrie, uh, Brent, Greg for joining us again. Um, I very much look forward to our next interaction. Um, these are always things that I have to give gratitude to Tim Spooner, the owner of Spooner Physical Therapy, for allowing Paul and I and trusting in Paul and I to deliver this vision that I've had for a long time to Julianne Brandt, our CEO, or sorry, COO, who allowed me the opportunity to improve our equipment so we can actually capture quality audio. Um, and then, then just the, the sincere gratitude that I have for you guys for taking the time to teach us and teach so many others the power that manual therapy has, the power that motor control has, the power that PNF has, the power to take a chance with patients. Um, your clinical insight, your clinical pearls, 
your theoretical discussions are so necessary in the world of physical therapy today. I truly hope that at least one listener from this podcast series comes and takes your course and realizes the power that I've realized, the power that Tori's realized, that Carrie's realized, that Paul's realized, that all the other people that have taken IPA courses and, and said, you know what, this makes sense, realize. Because when that happens, we're going to be able to help so many more people. We're going to be able to help so many more people have efficient movement and have self-empowerment and have self-awareness that without you guys, there wouldn't be those people. Um, I know that's a little bit of a tangent, but I, I had to say it because I didn't say it when Greg and Ryan were here in Arizona. Um, I didn't say it last time we got the opportunity to podcast with Brent. I didn't get to say it last time I took a course from Brent in, in, in Scottsdale. So I, I, I don't know that my words truly do the justice, but it is truly incredible to be in your presence and take courses from you and learn from you and see your passion. Um, and I think that I'm seeing a transformation in my colleagues who are here this weekend taking this course. Um, and, and it's truly inspiring for me to work alongside of them and to be able to call them colleagues as well, to be able to call you guys colleagues. So um, thank you so much. It, it, it's been awesome. I loved it. Dan, thanks for allowing us the platform and for having the passion to to do this, to allow us the platform to be able to reach reach more of an audience and to really challenge our own thought processes of how we would put this together. It's one thing to teach it in a, in a model, in a course, but it's completely different to have these kinds of relaxed, philosophical interactions with you in such a way that I do think it, it causes us all to grow and to reflect on truly what it is that, that we are doing. And it, it's one of those learning to be aware of what we're, what we're promoting and, and how we can put that into reach a greater audience. So thank you, Dan, for uh, hosting this and for taking the time and, and effort and energy and in the enthusiasm that you bring to every course I've ever been in with you. So thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan, and to Spinner Physical Therapy for providing this opportunity. It's been a true pleasure, guys. Um, so from Portland, Oregon, Therapist in Motion, signing off.